Kirby, Congressman Doug Collins on hot air, whistleblowing and impeachment. Brian Kilmeade recalls Sam Houston's fight for Texas. And Captain Tammy Joe Schultz saves 148 lives. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Oh, thank you very much. How delighted we are to have you, and especially happy to have our studio audience. And in this audience tonight, I've got a group of folks from my hometown of Hope, Arkansas. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have some folks from Hope who know all about me and still came to the show. Okay, I am a follower of Jesus, and though I'm far from perfect on that path, I truly am grateful for the grace of God in my life. Now, I've also been in the political arena for almost 30 years. And I get questioned, even challenged often, about reconciling living in the kingdom of God with living in the rough and sometimes savage world of the kingdom of politics and government. Sometimes the questions are honest and simple, such as, how can you be a Christian and engage in something as mean and vicious as politics? And then there are the people who usually admit they aren't even believers but then who blast me on social media platforms like Twitter and seek to shame me by saying something that I've said or done, quote, isn't very Christian. Well, determining something to be Christian or not is not the responsibility of some Twitter troll who believes that they rattle me by questioning the authenticity of my faith. Amen. Sorry, Charlie, but you're fishing in the Dead Sea. <laughs> God knows me inside and out, and he... And he alone is uniquely qualified to rebuke me, correct me, even discipline me. The petty and often petulant grievances of some twit typing out his tantrums while sitting in his Snoopy pajamas in his mama's basement just does not disturb me. Now, God gets my attention. But the angry, irrational bile coming from someone hiding behind a juvenile internet name does not cause me to curl up in a fetal position and meow like a house cat set outside in the cold. It just doesn't. Amen. And for those who think that Christians in politics shouldn't fight back and ought to be sweet, smiling, and sugary, I want to explain something. If a Christian plays in the NFL, he hits people hard. <laughs> he tackles, he blocks, he runs over people. And if he doesn't, he won't even start on a junior high team, much less make it to the NFL. Because in the arena of football, it's just a rough game. And if a Christian plays in the NBA, he will fight for every rebound, use his elbows to keep the ball, and run over people in the lane in order to get the shot. Because in the arena of basketball, that's how it's played. And in the game of politics, there are no prizes for second place. Everybody does not get a trophy. And if you have to play hard and fight hard, and you do, because the issues actually matter. Now, sure, you play within the rules and you don't cheat, lie, or hit below the belt, but the football player unwilling to hit hard won't be in the game long. And the candidate who doesn't fight for every inch of turf does not belong in the game because, like it or not, that's the arena in which we play. One doesn't have to be unnecessarily rough, mean, or vicious. But don't play politics if you can't stand to see the side of your own blood or if you can't accept being hit from behind. Folks, it's a full-contact sport played without pads, not for the faint of heart. The Christian in the NFL or the NBA plays hard and plays to win, but hopefully still plays ethically. The Christian in politics shouldn't lie, steal, or cheat, but can't pretend the game is without some conflict and contact. Taking a stand for the sanctity of life, for biblical marriage, or for the treatment of the poor may take some tough tactics. Doesn't mean you aren't a Christian if you play for keeps. It means you aren't much of a Christian if the outcome means so little to you that you'd rather be popular with your opponents than to win the issues. 
But wasn't Jesus nice? Well, of course he was. But he also called his opponents snakes and vipers. And he even turned over tables in the temple to protest the exploitation of gullible people. Look, it's okay to hate politics, and some of you do. But it's not okay to pretend that you're in the game when you do not have the courage in order to play to win. The impeachment hearings with both sides of Congress are underway, and it is political theater at its best. Rumor actually has it that the Bandario Speedwagon may be called to testify by Adam Schiff. And why, you may ask? Well, because they heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another. You've been messing around. Third-party hearsay. That is about right for these hearings. Joining us now to sort out what's happening on Capitol Hill and to determine the fallout the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, Congressman Doug Collins of Georgia. Congressman, welcome. And let me begin by asking the most obvious question. The Judiciary Committee, of which you're the ranking member, normally would be the committee, historically it always has been, in which any impeachment proceedings would happen. Why did Speaker Pelosi toss it over to the Intelligence Committee with Adam Schiff? Well, Mike's good to be with you, but also I think the, the biggest thing is we showed for 10 months that the Russian hoax, the Russia collusion, everything that uh, Chairman Nadler tried to bring into Judiciary Committee, and he, even including deputizing the 70s by bringing John Dean in, uh, would just prove to be a, a complete farce. And um, we beat him down, and, and when, we, when you beat him, uh, Ms. Pelosi had to come back, Speaker Pelosi had to look back at it and say, oh, this ain't going too well. So what she did was she went with uh, her close friend, Adam Schiff from California, who, as I've said many times before, uh, has uh, has trouble spelling the truth, much less telling it, um, was in the Intelligence Committee. So they put him behind his closed doors. And I uh -huh. think that's the, been, that's the that was the key. And, and from a political move, Mike, let's just be honest, from a political move, that was the smartest political move they could do because they took it behind closed doors. They leaked out what they wanted to leak out. So only what they wanted to come out was, was coming out to people. So they're being influenced that way. But why on earth uh, did the Democrats really believe that if this were to go all the way to the Senate in terms of a trial, uh, that this would be credible because everyone knows it would be absolutely tossed out on its face. It would never make it in the context of a Senate trial. Why are they even doing this? Is it purely to try to bring public support? Look, they have been promising this to their base since, frankly, November 2016. The night Hillary Clinton lost was the night impeachment began in the minds of many Democrats. And all you have to do is look at the media, look at their supporters, look at what they send out. They've been talking about this uh, for a long time. And it really saddens me to see the speaker actually talk about the being, this being a prayerful, solemn moment because there's nothing new here. In fact, if there's nothing new, we've seen the transcript, we saw the call, we've read everything that's going on. If there's nothing new here, then let's go back to what we do know. The call itself, there was no quid pro quo. The Ukrainian prime minister said, I was not pressured, nothing was going on. The Ukrainians got their money, they did nothing to get their money, and by the way, at the time of the call, they didn't even know that there was a discussion about the aid going on. There's really only been two impeachments right. in the history of the United States of America, two that actually went all the way. Hmm. What, what message right. do you, as a congressman and one of the ranking members of Congress, have for the American people as they look at this and try to say, do we need to get rid of this president this close to an election? I think this week we've seen in the in public impeachment hearings, you saw a very good uh, graphic, if you would, or a video of what really is wrong many times in Washington. And this is uh, the subtext of the, the Mr. Kent and Mr. Taylor's testimony the other day was, here it was. We've been in the State Department for many, 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 many years. We served under every president, Republican and Democrat, we're the experts, the president ought to listen to us, and if he does anything that we don't like, we're the arbiters of what policy should be. So the question I ask the American people is, is did you elect these ambassadors to lead foreign policy, or did you elect President Donald Trump to lead our country? The scary part about this is, Mike, is this. The Democrats have been constantly attacking our voting process, the actual vote itself, because they believe that if they can get people to where they don't trust to vote, they would be able to win, they would be able to, to take over. And this is a concern that they can't beat him at the election, so they're going to try and beat him uh, in impeachment. In fact, it's actually been said, we can't win the election uh, unless we impeach him. People who are employed by the State Department, people who work for the president, even on the national security team, they're employees, they're appointees. They haven't been elected by anybody. And constitutionally, the foreign policy of the United States is the exclusive domain 
of the president. He has a right to fire people who don't support his policies. That shouldn't be so hard to understand that no president ought to be saddled with a bunch of people who can't stand him, who wants to undermine him, who goes behind his back. And he has every right to fire them. What's, mm -hmm. what's impeachable about that? Nothing. And I think what's really interesting the other day, and I, I sort of jokingly call President Swalwell, uh, it was such a long <laughs> run at president that he was attempting, but uh, he made a comment the other day that was really showed his fundamental disconnect on why I'm glad he's not going to be president, is he said this, he said, a president shouldn't fire an ambassador just because that ambassador doesn't follow the policies of the administration. <laughs> Excuse me? I, I would assume that if he actually made, if he actually made it to be president, I would assure you he would make sure that his ambassadors followed what his policy would be. But will it come to the Judiciary Committee? And if it does, will you, as the ranking member uh, on the Republican side, will you have the opportunity to call witnesses, including the whistleblower? Or are mm -hmm. we going to continue to see everything in the House kept behind closed doors that the Democrats don't want us to see? Number one, Adam Schiff is supposed to be giving a report to the Judiciary Committee on the findings and recommendations. First and foremost, and I'm going to start it right here, right now, just start a countrywide. If Adam Schiff presents a report to judiciary talking about impeachment, Adam Schiff must testify. He must come before the committee, be uh, accessible to both Democrat, Republican, and the White House attorneys to answer the, the findings of his report. The concerning part I'm having is, is I'm not getting a good feeling from the Judiciary Committee that they're even looking at possibly having a real substantive hearing. We may have a hearing that talks about the report, maybe with scholarly, you know, constitutional folks who agree with them, but that's not a hearing in which the president's attorneys and others can actually uh, make cases or make, uh, you know, have a great cross-examination where they can actually say, look, here's the, the realities here. So what we're seeing is a, is a continuation of unfair process. We've been sending letters to Chairman Nadler saying, you have a chance to redeem this process and also to find the true facts, which are not going to see what you want, but it shows that the president did nothing wrong. When it comes back to us, that's when it should actually happen. We're going to be fighting. I would recommend folks get ready to watch when that happens. Congressman, final question. Uh, as the song says, I'll be home for Christmas. Will you be home for Christmas? Is this going to be over and wrapped up by then? I would hope so. I think they're, they're on a desperate time frame. Remember, they got, they got absolutely awful candidates running for president who have to be in Iowa uh, in the first part of uh, February. But I'll tell you what, if I'm upstairs still fighting for what I believe is the American constitutional way of life and making sure that this president is defended because he did nothing wrong here, then I'll stay here through Christmas. My family can come see me and we'll be fine. Well, Congressman, we are thankful that straightforward representatives of the people like you are making sure that citizens truly know the truth on these proceedings and the everyday issues of government. I want to encourage every one of our audience to stay informed visiting the Congressman online, DougCollins.House.gov. Follow him on Twitter. You'll enjoy it at Rep. Doug Collins. And if you'd like to join me for more news analysis, including how children in elementary school are being taught that male and female identities are just pretend, plus a whole lot more, uh, maybe from inside the Beltway and beyond. Be sure to watch Facts of the Matter. It's after the show at Huckabee.tv. Keith, I want you to know I identify as an audience member in need of a great show, so why don't you tell me what's coming up tonight? Well, coming up, heroic pilot Tammy Jo Schultz, then best-selling author and Fox News host Brian Kilmeade. And later, America's tenor Steve Amerson performs on Huckabee. Next week, Ambassador Nikki Haley stands up for America and Randy Travis on the blessings and challenges of his career. And welcome back to our show. On April the 17th of 2018, 20 minutes into a Southwest Airlines flight from New York to Dallas with 149 souls on board, an engine on the Boeing 737 exploded. It tore away parts of the plane, shattered a window, and sent shrapnel flying throughout the airplane. The passengers thought their lives were over. But veteran pilot, Tammy Jo Schultz responded to the emergency with steely resolve that revealed a total pro. Southwest 1380, you'd like to turn, start turning inbound. Southwest 1380, turn, uh, just start turning southbound there. There's a Southwest 737 on a four mile final, be turning southbound. Start looking for the airport, it's off to your right and slightly behind you there. Okay, could you have the uh, medical meet us there on the runway as well? We've got uh, injured passengers. 
Injured passengers, okay, and are you, is your airplane physically on fire? No, it's not on fire, but part of it's missing. They said there was a hole and uh, someone went out. The story of that miraculous landing and heroic pilot is told in a brand new book. It's called Nerves of Steel, How I Followed My Dreams, Earned My Wings, and Faced My Greatest Challenge. It is a real honor to welcome to the show Tammy Jo Schultz. Tammy Jo, thank you so much for being here. I got to tell you something, listening to that recording, an engine has exploded on a twin engine jet. You're in real trouble. You got a whole bunch of people on board. I want to know how you were that calm. I will say, I mean, when it happened, we only knew what we felt. And Darren Elliser, my first officer, and I both thought we'd been hit by another airplane. The jolt was so violent mm. and just uh, put the aircraft in a sideways skid. We went into a rapid roll and a pitch over. And, you know, in that moment of time, uh, adrenaline kicks in, and like it does for everyone. And adrenaline can make you think very quickly. It doesn't really give you an epiphany or anything outside of what you already know. But, but where your mind runs, uh, it goes quickly. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure that all the big pieces are going to stay on until we get to a runway. And that would lead me to the conclusion that it may be the day that I meet my maker. And uh. at that point, I really stopped the run to the cliffs of what if. And, and I just realized then I wouldn't be meeting a stranger, mm. that I meet with him every day. And so if that's the bad news, the good news is we're still flying. You were one of the very first female pilots in the Navy flying uh, F.A. 18 Hornet jets, yes. which in itself is a stunning thing to do. I don't care what gender a person is. How much of your Navy training as a fighter pilot helped prepare you for that moment? You know, I think probably one of the best uh, swaths of training I had was back teaching in the humble little T2 Buckeye. And I had a commander that came on board that pulled my guns uh, qualification and said, I will not have a woman teaching guns in my squadron. And so I was publicly shamed into huh. uh, taken out of that group and sent to teach what nobody even wanted to fly one flight of, which is out of control flight. You climb up to 30,000 feet, depart the aircraft, sometimes fairly dynamically, and recover 10 times or so, and then land. And the next day you do it again with another student. And so that training was really some of the best. And I felt like God taught me a lesson, not just in the air in that, because it would be really easy to let an offense get in the way of an opportunity. And so. Tammy, there were 149 people on board the plane. Miraculously, uh, sadly, but miraculously, there was one who, who perished. But 148 people survived what could have been a complete and catastrophic loss of every single life. I'm sure that is something that goes on in your mind time and again. We had an engine failure, and that's basically what I think everybody knew, and a rapid depressurization. Yeah. But we also had uh, hydraulics lines that were severed, fuel lines that were severed, and then Gosh. the normal procedures for a single engine wouldn't really work for us because we had a single engine, but it was an exposed uh, single engine with lots of uh, flailing big pieces of of engine cowling under our wing, as well as a damaged wing. And so when we got down closer to the ground, there was a lot that we couldn't use that we thought we were gonna be able to use. When you finally put it on the ground and you were able to walk away from the airplane after all the passengers off, mm -hmm. first thoughts, first actions, what happened? My first words on the PA when I came out of the cockpit was, God is good mm. and we're on the ground. now." Obviously, the loss of Jennifer Reardon is, it will never be eclipsed by yeah. the survival of 148. But you know that Ecclesiastic scripture about there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, mm. certainly capsulates that day. Do you still fly? Absolutely. So it, it didn't shake you up like it would most of us? Well, it, I think it's, you know, I sat in a different seat than everyone else in that airplane. Thank goodness that you were up front, not back well, there. <laughs> you know, the difference of you being in a school bus that's sliding on black ice towards the edge of a cliff, it's very different if you're the driver or you're in the back. 
for yeah. if you're in the back. And so being the one who has the controls and working out the plan as we get closer to the ground, you know, I was really busy thinking about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. Everyone else really had that big question mark in their minds, which is, is mind-numbing and fear sometimes. Yeah. Final question. Your faith is such a big part of who you are. Would this have turned out as well had you not had that inner peace right. to rely upon? You know, I, honestly, when you read my book, you'll probably see, I don't know that I would have had the tenacity to get through all the, the flight program mm. had I not had the Lord to, to back up to and just realize my worth is in Christ, not in what I do. Yeah. So I, you know, definitely, I would be a different person, probably doing a different occupation. <laughs> if I'm... Uh... I'm on airplanes four or five days a week. I got to tell you, if I ever see you in the cockpit, I'm going to be one happy guy to know oh, you're Oh, please up come up. I'm going to be so happy. <laughs> Tammy Jo Schultz, what an amazing human being. And the book is fantastic. Nerves of Steel, available now from all major booksellers and at CaptainSchultz.com. That's where you can also download four free chapters. So if you're saying, well, I want to know a little more about the book, download free chapters, you'll get the rest of them, I guarantee you. Also, you can book Tammy Jo Schultz to come and speak to your group. She'll probably drive there. I doubt she'll fly. I don't know. Maybe she will fly. I will probably fly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keys, why don't you take flight and tell us what's coming up next? Well, next, Franklin Graham turns shoeboxes into Operation Christmas Child. And later, best-selling author Brian Kilmeade and world-renowned tenor Steve Amerson sings on Huckabee. My wife, Janet, just returned from the Bahamas where she was a volunteer with Samaritan's Purse helping to scrub mold and scrape mud from homes that were devastated by Hurricane Dorian. Got to be honest with you, when I saw these photos of her in her protective mask because of the severe mold, I wondered at first if she had joined Antifa. But the trip gave her firsthand experience with the incredible work that's being done all over the world by Samaritan's Purse. In fact, she plans on going back to help even some more. My next guest is president and chairman of the board for this wonderful charitable organization, Samaritan's Purse, and they do so much to serve hurting people following natural disasters and wars all over the world. But at this time of year, they also give children around the world Christmas gifts in a shoebox, creating more smiles than you can possibly count. Please welcome back to the show my friend Franklin Graham. <laughs> Franklin, my wife had a wonderful time working with Samaritan's Purse staff and volunteers. She's ready to go back, and uh, boy, does she sing the praises of the phenomenal work that's being done by Samaritan's Purse. Oh, Governor, she was a hit. Everybody loved her, and I'm so grateful for the volunteers that come from uh, really around the world to come help other people who leave the comfort of their homes like your wife did to go to a strange country, take cold showers, work hard all day, uh, scrubbing mold and mud and sand. And uh, just it's, uh, we just couldn't do this work with, without the volunteers. So please uh, tell your wife uh, a big thank you from, from me and all of us at Samaritan's Purse. Well, I appreciate it. She does plan on coming back. The only thing, I gotta be honest, she didn't love those cold showers very much, but in spite of that, she'll come back. Let's talk about these incredible <laughs> shoe boxes that Good. Samaritan's Purse has been doing for a long time. I've got a couple in front of me. I know you've got one opened up. Tell us about what the shoe boxes are all about. Well, it's, it's about uh, taking uh, Christmas to children around the world, uh, doing this in Jesus' name. I want the children of the world to know the true meaning of Christmas, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever... And that's the children of the world and each and every person that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. And these are packed by families, uh, individuals, by children. Uh, we ask people to put items in there for a, a girl or a boy. Uh, put a letter in there. And this one's got a letter and it's got a, um, we ask people, put your picture 
uh, so that the child who, who gets the box uh, sees who gave the box. Put your address back there. And then put toys. This one's got a, it's got a soccer ball. It's got uh, the pump with it. It's got a teddy bear, harmonica, uh, toothbrush, these kinds of things. But before you send the box to us, we just ask people to just take a moment and pray uh, for the child who's going to get the box. It's an incredible undertaking, 11 million of these shoe boxes. I will tell you this, I'd be a little hesitant to put my picture in it. I don't want to scare these kids. So uh, maybe I'd just uh, do some boxes and, and write them a note, but not put the picture in there. I don't want to ruin their Christmas. Uh, but let me ask well, you about <laughs> some of these well, kids. Well, no, but put your wife's picture. <laughs> I'll put her picture. That might not scare them. You have personally no. distributed no. many of these boxes around the world at Christmas time. Tell us about one of the memories you have of handing a box that is specifically for a child and the joy in their face and what they did that just stick with you even now. Well, a, we were in Kosovo, and this was during uh, the fighting in Kosovo about 20 years ago. And I remember uh, giving a box to a kid in a school. All the windows had been blown out uh, mm. due to the fighting. There was no heat in the school concrete building, no windows, kids sitting at their desk, and it was about, about 30 degrees. It was below freezing, it was cold. And uh, all the kids had coats on, except one kid didn't have a jacket. And uh, we passed out the boxes and we count to three, everybody opened their boxes, except this kid opened his and he put the lid back on it. And I thought, well, maybe he got a bad box. Uh, I better go check it out. <laughs> so I went and said, don't you want to see what's in the box? And he said, okay. We opened it up and there was like a, a napkin and some stuff that looked like it would have been crocheted. Maybe it was, I, I didn't know, but I took that out and underneath it, there was a leather bomber jacket. You know, one of these jackets that has the fleece oh, like they yeah. wore during the Second World War, the, the, the guys on the B-17s. Yeah a leather bomber jacket and he pulled this out the whole class stopped this was the only kid who did not have a jacket and we put it on him and it fit him i believe god intended that jacket to go to that kid how can an individual be a part of operation shoebox well first of all they can go to samaritan's purse to uh, our website and uh, samaritanspurse.org uh, you click on the operation christmas child uh, link and uh, gives you all the instructions about how to pack a box. Uh, we'll send you one of these boxes, um, and then uh, you can make it for a boy or a girl. And then uh, you can actually follow the box too, and that's really cool, Governor. Mm. Uh, you can put a barcode on there, and you can actually track to see what country your box goes to. So uh, that's a lot of fun for families to track that box. And then we have a discipleship course. After it's all said and done for the kids, that uh, accept Christ into their hearts. It's called The Greatest Journey. It's a 12-lesson discipleship course that we offer through the churches in 110 different countries. Uh, these are countries that support Operation Christmas Child, churches that do the distribution in those countries. And uh, for kids that accept Christ, they can come back to the church for a discipleship course. Uh, this year, 2019, we had a little over 4 million children enrolled in a 12 week discipleship course. We believe in 2020, we'll see somewhere north of 5 million children taking this. I can't thank you enough for uh, all that Samaritan's Purse is doing and especially with this extraordinary uh, effort for children. Franklin, thank you very much. Governor, thank you and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Now go to SamaritansPurse.org. That's how you can participate in this great Christmas tradition. And hey, anyone can pack a shoebox, even me, and the National Collection Week starts on Monday, November the 18th. There is even a collection site right near where you live. So be sure, spread some joy as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Just visit SamaritansPurse.org. Keith Bilbrey, you know how to share a little joy yourself. So why don't you tell the viewers about some of the great guests we have coming up next. Well, up next, Fox News' Brian Kilmeade on how Sam Houston won Texas. Then, funny news stories on In Case You Missed It. Plus, America's tenor Steve Amberson sings right here on Huckabee.
You know my next guest from Fox and Friends, as well as his national radio show, which is called The Brian Kilmeade Show, for reasons that, well, they remain a mystery to me. I have no idea. He also has best-selling books on American history. The new book he has is called Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, The Texas Victory that changed American history, and boy, did it ever. Please welcome my friend Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for having me on, Governor. Great hey, to see you in person. Back. It is great having you here. Why do you call the radio show The Brian Kilmeade Show? I mean, what is that about? It's my arrogance and my ego combined together. <laughs> and I don't know, was your show when you were on the radio, was it called The Mike Huckabee Show? Uh, no, it was called uh, The oh, Show with me? No Name Host. Wait a second, I, can we call that up, please? Do, do we have a resource room that I can turn to? Uh, but I, I think it's a good idea for you to go ahead and call it that. This is a fascinating character, one of the greatest in all of American history, and I'm so glad you've written about him because a lot of people don't know the backstory of Sam Houston. The Alamo, singularly, one of the great events of human uh, history. Why? What attracted me to this story, because Fox Nation, number one, said, Brian, we want you to host this series called What Made America Great. Can you imagine if people, <laughs> if this country was actually great? Yeah. I actually believe we both believe that. Absolutely. And one of my first shoots was the Alamo. And I said, great. And while I sat there and I researched, I was fascinated. When I went there and met it and saw it, I realized this is a much bigger story. And Ken Burns, of all people, and yes, I'm name dropping. You can edit that out later because it's, it's your show, Governor. Uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, Brian, what are you doing next after, after Andrew yeah. Jackson? And I said, well, I'm, I'm thinking about doing something on the Alamo, but I'm worried it's plowed ground. He said, San Jacinto. And uh. I said, how it ended? I go, yeah. So I said, what if I told the story, what led to the Alamo? What if I made the Alamo part of it? But most important, let me tell you how it ended. And when you talk about magical things that happen in our country that break our way, so you could say that in some way, somehow, America got out bigger and better, this is another one of those stories. Because in the deal that Moses Austin, father of Stephen F. Austin, cut, we were able to put more people into Texas in 10 years than the Spanish put in 300 years. And when they tried, and they were happy being, somewhat happy being part of Mexico, when Mexico got their identity. But when they tried to take liberty away from a bunch of Texans, they stood up and they fought back. And it was the way they fought at the Alamo and the, and the, and the length of the battle with 180 against up to 3,000. And the, and, the, and the success they had, even though ultimately, obviously, everybody would be uh, killed and their bodies burned. It delayed it enough for Sam Houston to drill his army, build his army, and shape the battlefield for the ultimate fight would be at San Jacinto, which would last 18 minutes and would be an overwhelming American victory. You know, it's an extraordinary story. The letter by Colonel William Travis that is on display in the Alamo, I think is one of the greatest statements of valor and duty that has ever been written in human history. What would you do if you knew you were staring at death? Yeah, you and know you're, you're gonna get creamed, you know that. So he's asking for help, yeah. but he ends it with, by the way, I'm gonna fight, and I'm gonna fight to the death, victory or death. And he talked about being an American mm. and the way you die. I mean, I open up with a quote from Sam Houston's mom, and I'll just paraphrase <laughs> it. You go to war, and you fight in the War of 1814, but remember, nobody here gets shot in the back. You get shot in the back, we don't breed cowards. You fight with wow. strength. His so, own mother says that. Mom says that. <laughs> Don't turn your back on battle and run, man. You better get, you know, uh, die on your shield. So he's a lawyer. He's in his 20s. He was remaking his life like so many in Texas. And as he's asking for help, when it became clear he, they wouldn't be coming, he talked about what he hoped for and how he would fight. And my goodness, he did fight that way. And you ask yourself and you check yourself and say, if I am staring down the battle of a gun, how would I do it? And what I would do is I'd rally troops. And the day before his death, the famous red lines, the, uh, the line in the sand, when he said, listen, we're outnumbered. They're going to raid any day, and it's going to start. The siege will begin. This is your chance to leave. There's the opening in the, uh, around the Mexican army. He drew the line. And Jim Bowie was suffering from what we believe pneumonia or something worse, was in the sick bay. And he said, bring me up on a stretcher. And he brought him up on a stretcher just so he could be lifted across that line to say, uh, I want to show, I'm going to cross that line. I will fight to the death. You know, I got to say the Bowie knife for which Jim Bowie was so famous was built by a blacksmith named James Black eight miles from where I was wow. born in Arkansas. Back then, <laughs> uh, uh, Governor, uh, if you had that Bowie knife, it would also, he used it a few times to fight to the death. Yeah. He was a Navy SEAL before there were them. <laughs> and part of the reason why people remember the Alamo is because the most famous people on the planet, uh, Americans, were there. David yeah. Crockett was there. William Barrett Travis was yeah. there. 
uh, this guy named Jim Bowie was there, and Sam Houston told Bowie, go in there and tell everyone to get out. We're not going to be able to defend the Alamo. When Bowie got there, he looked around and said, these people are so determined, I bet you we can seal up these walls and, and win. And maybe if he, didn't die, if he didn't get stricken with this pneumonia or whatever he got, they would have found a way. But that's the whole thing. You have Sam Houston learning what he learned in 1814 and 1812, fighting under Jackson, and then becoming the, the commander using all those hard lessons. Courage has got to be calculated. Our, our union is fragile. He learned those things in the War of 1812. He would apply that in 1836. You said something a moment ago I think is very important. You said that the Texans were getting along pretty well and everything was fine. But when the Mexicans decided they were going to take their liberty away, that war was not about land. It was about liberty. And I'm telling you right now, the link to today's news is so important because there's a war on history in this country. And that's why what I said is I've put all these books together and I'll go on stages not, not close to as nice as is this and your audience is much cuter uh, and I'll talk about our history and I never thought there'd be an audience for it but because of such a pushback and this sober look at what makes an American exceptional nation that maybe we're not too exceptional as if we've been digesting propaganda that's why I think it's important to go back and read your own history and for me the best part about this book is the research because it's almost like walking through a beach with a Geiger counter you discover new things about our past Governor, we're not perfect, but our, our, our quest to be better is admirable, and no nation has our track record. That's what I think is important about your books. This one is absolutely a must-read. Folks, it is uh, Sam Houston, The Alamo Avengers. Now, you can find links to Brian's terrific new book, Sam Houston and The Alamo Avengers, Get it at all of your favorite booksellers through his website as well, briankillmead.com. That's where you're also going to find his other books, radio show, live appearances, and a whole lot more. To follow him on Facebook and Twitter, just search for at Killmead. Hey, Keith, why don't you tell us what we have coming up for the rest of the show? Coming up, cringe while you grin news stories on In Case You Missed It. Then America's favorite tenor Steve Emerson sings on Huckabee. Welcome back. Let's give a little love to Trey Corley and the Music City Connection over here, the best band I know. Well, turning to the news, we've got everything from a catastrophic cat to road signs that'll turn your head on a segment we like to call In Case You Missed It. Well, a California man was confronted by transit police in San Francisco for eating a breakfast sandwich while standing on a train platform last week. That's right. Doing that breaks a state law that ended with a man being handcuffed and given a citation for eating a breakfast sandwich on the train platform. Now, this is in the place where the new San Francisco DA greenlighted that people could pee anywhere without fear of prosecution. <laughs> so you can pee on the street, but you can't eat a sandwich. Think about that. So commuter Steve Foster was going to go to work when a transit officer stopped him mid-munch, alerting Foster that he was breaking the law. The officer told Foster that eating on a BART train or platform was illegal. He then grabbed Foster's backpack and threatened jail. Seems a little dramatic to me, but it's not like this breakfast snacker was a serial killer. Mm. Or he was nothing like the coffee that filed a police report for being mugged. <laughs> or even worse, eating pun cakes on the platform. <laughs> Keith, they're turning against me. I feel it. Uh, they're turning on you. You're right. Well, three other officers arrived on the scene. Now we got four officers. They handcuffed Foster and they led him to a holding room. A spokesperson for BART said that Foster was not arrested following the incident but he was issued a citation for eating inside our paid area, which is a violation of state law in California. Foster reportedly faces a $250 fine and 48 hours of community service for his citation. 
I think you just gotta love California and their excellent crackdown on breakfast sandwich eaters. I guess officials out there just can't take a yoke. All right, a crafty feline at a Texas animal rescue facility has been put in solitary cat confinement for letting out all the other cats in the shelter multiple times. A real catastrophe, if you ask me. Houston Animal Rescue Friends for Life stated that the cat named Quilty loves to let cats out of the senior room, and he was doing it several times a day. Now, the cat's bio on the pet adoption website states, and I quote, I do know that I like to open closed doors, and when I see one, it challenges me, and I work hard to get it open, and I'm usually successful, end quote. <laughs> Obviously, Quilty's conduct left the animal rescue staff perplexed. Perplexed, I said. <laughs> Quilty ended up being banished to the lobby of the facility for a brief hiatus. Now, the Friends website explained his roommates missed him while he was banished to the lobby. They enjoyed their nighttime escapades around the shelter. The staff, however, did not miss the morning cat wrangling, so we'll just have to agree to disagree there. Uh, Governor? Yes, sir, Keith? Let me interrupt you, but did you okay. ever tell you about the time I was cat-sitting for my niece's feline, and it, it escaped outside. I didn't know how to find it. The next morning, when I saw it way up in a tree, I tried everything I knew to lure it down. So I, I called the fire department. You know what the dispatcher said? No. They don't come get cats down anymore. Really? She said it would come down when it was hungry enough. So I asked, now, how do you know that? And she said, have you ever seen a cat skeleton up a tree? <laughs> Makes sense. You know? That's the first joke you ever told. It made sense, Keith, yeah. I gotta tell you. Done. You just interrupted a perfect story here. Let's go back to Quilty, because Quilty was placed in an integration kennel to get readjusted. However, Quilty apparently also released himself from the integration kennel. The rescue staff joking that the cat released himself of his own recognizance. Now, because of this Houdini-like conduct, Quilty has amassed more than 30,000 fans on his personal Instagram titled, Free Quilty. His profile describes him as a door ninja with an advanced degree in catculus. Now, it seems fitting to end this story with a cat joke. Nah, just kidding. All right, before we wrap things up, I wanted to tell you that the other day, I saw a really unique sign. And I thought to myself, is this a sign that we would do a segment on signs? Or am I just hallucinating? Well, I wasn't, so here we go. Do you ever take the time to read signs that we whiz by in our commute each day? Well, if you did, you might notice ones like this. Here is one from a veterinarian whose horse mayo nays. Audience is a little slow on that one, Keith. It's finally catching up to them. Or a hotel that won't make an unbearable mistake twice. <laughs> or a company who is accident-free since Joe left. Poor Joe. <laughs> or here's a sign about a church that quotes wisely from the Book of Mom. Or a man <laughs> who just takes signs too seriously, that's for sure. Well, just like a cat that's used up eight lives and is stuck in a dog kennel, we got to go. But always remember that we read the news. Okay, Keith, tell us what's next. Well, get ready for the heartfelt sound of America's tenor, Steve Amerson. Huckabee's back in 60 seconds. My next guest is known as America's tenor. 
His rich, powerful voice can be heard in both pop and classical music and in over 175 feature films, including Star Wars, Rogue One, La La Land, and Beauty and the Beast. But greater than his rich singing voice is his love for America and its people. His current single, I Choose to Love, taps into America's much needed movement of love for one another. Would you please welcome a dear friend and a wonderful voice, Steve Amerson. Steve, great to have you. Thank you, Governor. Glad to be here. I have heard you sing at stadiums with 60,000 people as you've done the national anthem for football and baseball games, all sorts of and things. And the rodeo. And the coolest thing, every year you and I both go to the national finals yeah. rodeo in Las Vegas, which is in December, and you always, I mean, bring the house down with patriotic music uh, that honor our veterans. I love doing that. It's, it's uh, First of all, uh, growing up, I had attended some rodeos, but it wasn't until I sang at the <laughs> National Finals Rodeo then I'd really been to a rodeo. It's that, a world it, series of rodeos. It's it, amazing. Well, you know, you always are invited to come for the honor of the Veterans Night because you have such a rich history mm -hmm. of singing at events that honor veterans. Why is that so important to you? Um, because I appreciate America, and I appreciate men and women who have served in our nation's military. Over the past 10 years, I've been honored to sing for events honoring Medal of Honor recipients. Mm. There are 71 living Medal of Honor recipients right now. I was with uh, about 17 of them uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Dallas uh, with American Airlines as they were honoring uh, military families and doing things to support the military. You know, there's something that you do that I, I think is just incredible, and it's very quiet. You don't make a big deal of it, but twice a month you go to Washington, D.C., and you go to congressional offices, both Democrat and Republican, and you minister to them, you pray with them, you offer to just listen to their problems and you write them personal notes and leave for them. How'd that start? Well, it started uh, almost five years ago. I was asked to lead in a worship service, the first worship service back in the Capitol in 144 years. Hmm. There used to be weekly worship services <laughs> in Statuary Hall in the Capitol. So I was invited to come back and sing for that. And after that service, they said, would you come back at least twice a month? So I fly from Los Angeles to D.C. twice a month uh, to participate in that. And then during the day, I write 190 handwritten notes just of encouragement with a verse of Scripture and I deliver those. Uh, normally on Wednesday, I walk between 10 and 11 miles wow. to their offices and deliver these notes of encouragement because most of what Congress hears is negative. Yeah. Most of the emails, phone calls, faxes are negative. So uh, it's building relationship uh, with, with people, even if I disagree with them politically. Uh, I'm not there to be a policy person. I'm there to show the love of Jesus. Well, thank God you're doing that. We need to pray for you as you're praying with these members of Congress. What a great ministry. Now, Steve is going to get ready to sing for us, and Keith is going to tell the folks at home how they can get the wonderful music of America's tenor, Steve Amerson. To purchase your copy of Steve's latest EP, I Choose to Love, please go to steveamerson.com. You can buy Steve's music there or anywhere music is sold. That's steveamerson.com. You can also follow him on Twitter and Facebook at Steve Amerson. And don't miss Steve's performance of He Can after the show on Huckabee.tv. Now, here to perform I Choose to Love is Steve Amerson. convinced that I'm wrong and I believe that I'm right it's become clear to me on most things we won't agree but I refuse to let our differences divide I choose to love even when harsh words are spoken I choose to love Though our friendship might seem broken It's up to me to choose To show grace or to refuse I choose to rise above I choose to love 
Some people say that love is just the way that you feel, but our words can cut deep, or they can heal. Every beating heart knows that it's hard to hate a close, so I refuse to let our differences divide. I choose to love, even when harsh words are spoken. I choose to love, though our friendship might seem broken. It's up to me to choose, to show grace or to refuse. I choose to rise above. I choose to love. We must choose to stand together. Our words are not enough. Our world will be much better. I choose to love